again this afternoon. I want to thank you for making the effort to be here. Excited to continue a study from 1 John on our assurance of salvation. We've been exploring and centering our series on the, these sub-themes that center around the God is statements. God is life, God is light, God is love. And this afternoon we're going to be finishing the mini-series on light. We've talked about profession, we've talked about confession, and now uh, this morning and this afternoon our practice and balancing out. You know, you, you read for a while and you start getting the impression that that uh, it, he's being permissive. You know, you can confess and you have an advocate and then he hits you with your practice matters. What you do, matter, how you live actually matters and has effect on your salvation and on your assurance. So there's this amazing harmony, amazing balance throughout this book, balancing assurance and diligence. And if we will appreciate that balance, study it, meditate upon it, reflect upon it, we can experience that balance in our lives as Christians with assurance and diligence. Uh, not complacency, not content, but still not being robbed of the joy of our salvation. So I hope you find that relevant and helpful. John, as I said this morning, is as hard on our practice, our lifestyle, our walk as anybody is. And he doesn't want us to misunderstand that and misinterpret all the teaching on grace and advocacy and propitiation and uh, that we have assurance of our salvation, that you may know you have eternal life. He doesn't want us to misunderstand that or misinterpret that. He's hard on our practice, but he's equally hard on perfectionism. And doesn't want us to swing to the other extreme that we sometimes wrestle with and deal with regarding our assurances that becoming a Christian means now that I've got to be perfect. And so going back to our, the text we studied in depth this morning, again, amplification, cycling back to these same things over and over, but looking at a different angle or nuance, 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, Now by this we know that we know Him if, that's a conditional word, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. There's that word know over and over. Thesis statement, that you may know you have eternal life. How do we know? How do we have certainty? What's the characteristics? We talked about uh, the characteristics he gives for what it means to walk in darkness. How we know for walking in darkness, being a person of hate, hating God, hating others. That summarizes virtually all sin. And the opposite, walking in the light, he characterizes what it means to be a person who walks in the light and has fellowship with God and God's people and how we know that we know Him. We live according to the commandments and standards of God as defined in His Word. If you love me, keep my commandments. We keep His Word and we exemplify Christ in our life. That's what it means to walk in the light. We know that we know Him if, conditional, we keep His commandments. We obey. And perhaps these cavalier, lukewarm apathetic attitudes towards sin are the result of not teaching this truth. People are taught that salvation has nothing to do with our conduct, whether or not we submit to God, that we are saved with a dead faith that James talks about in James 2, mental consent only. doesn't affect any change in our life. And in fact, to look for any changes in our life as evidence that we have faith, as evidence that we have been born again, is wrong and will cost you your salvation. It's, there's a lot of irony in that. If you try to express your faith and trust and love for God by keeping His commandments, doing what He's asked you to do, proving that you trust Him, that He knows what's best for you, you're trying to earn your salvation and therefore you're not going to be saved. To be saved, you've got to trust His grace and mentally consent. God exists, but don't obey Him. 
Don't try to submit to Him because now you're trying to earn your salvation. And if that's the concept of faith, then as Jason said a while back, I remember him uh, talking about Martin Luther wrestling with the book of James. And he's obviously going to wrestle with it because it doesn't harmonize with his agenda and the doctrines of Calvinism. Again, swinging from one extreme to the other in reaction to those who maybe had perverted uh, it was salvation by works and no faith, and now it's salvation by faith with no works without having the balance and the harmony we see in 1 John and throughout Scripture. And so he can't harmonize the book of James with unconditional election and, and perseverance of the saints and that it doesn't matter that how we live has no bearing on our salvation and assurance. And so he essentially said he would like to throw Jimmy in the fire, speaking of the book of James. And if the concept of faith is you don't have to do anything, it's mental consent only, if that's the concept, you have to throw Jimmy in the fire, you have to throw John in the fire, you have to throw Paul, his beloved Paul, even in the fire, because none of it teaches that concept of faith. These books, these writers, the Bible at large, Jesus Himself, if you love me, keep my commandments, blow this theology out of the water. Notice what John says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You can't know that you have passed from life to death if you don't obey and submit to the command to love. Again, if you're a person of hate instead of a person of love, you can't have assurance. You can't know that you have eternal life. Listen, disobedience and inconsistency in our life, your practice affects your assurance. And habitual sin, a lack of growth, a refusal to change will rob you and drain you of your assurance and of your confidence in your salvation. So again, the context of this book and of this text, something unsettling has happened that's causing John to write to them about their assurance. How do you know who the real Christians are and who the fake Christians are? How do you know it's real? How do you know you're really going to heaven? Something's happened that's very unsettling that he's addressing. We see this context throughout this letter. And I think we have an indication or a clue of what's happened that's so unsettling in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us with the same spirit of obedience and submission that real Christians should have. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Professing believers have left the church, and that's been very unsettling. And I believe the they that went out from us likely were the Gnostics that we've been talking about. The Greek Gnosis, to know, they are claiming superior knowledge, that the flesh is pure evil, therefore God could not come into the flesh. They denied the incarnation. They denied Jesus was Christ, and Christ was Jesus. And there are moral implications. They were teaching how you behave in the flesh is irrelevant, doesn't matter, doesn't affect your salvation. They had gone out from us. And so the question now is, how do we know who's real? How do we know who's genuine? How can we have confidence that we're going to heaven, that we're saved? Their departure was unsettling, as was what they were teaching, the doctrines and tenets of Gnosticism. And so again, I think there are perhaps clues in this book about what these Gnostics were teaching. If we say, perhaps that was what was being said that he's addressing, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive. if we say that we have not sin, He who says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, if a woman says, I love God and hates his brother, how we live doesn't matter. If we say that we have not sinned, because now who we are in the flesh isn't who we really are, it's who we are in the Spirit, so as a Christian, you can't sin, you're perfect. 
If we say that we have not sinned. If we say that we know God, but we don't love people, which is what they were likely doing. They were even claiming that how they lived had no bearing on their salvation. This was a distortion of justification by faith. And Paul, James, John, Jesus, all correct that distortion. Who you are is based on what you consistently do. What you consistently do proves who you actually are. That's the truth. And so in verse 4, we see this connection between knowing Christ and obeying His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and, here's the conjunction, does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Anyone who claims to know Christ ought to walk as He walked, otherwise you lose assurance in your salvation. Knowing Christ produces obedience, and that produces confidence. That produces assurance. Not that we're perfect. 1 John 4, 6, We are of God. He who knows God hears us. Speaking of the inspired writers, the apostles. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Knowing God means born of God, being born of His character. And a disobedient person doesn't know God. The truth is not in him, John says. Now, it might be on the surface, but is it in you? Do we have a knowledge and an experience of God and Christ that's so real, that's so deep, that's so profound, that it affects the way we live our life in the flesh every day? Every day. 1 John 4, 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. We know and we trust the love of God. This knowledge and experience of God's love, this confidence, this trust, this knowledge and faith in God's love demands, guarantees, should guarantee obedience. You can't know, here's the point John's making, you can't know the love of God and not submit to His commandments. If you really know and have experienced the love of God, you'll trust Him. And you'll trust Him by doing what He's asked you to do. John's point is, if you don't trust and believe in God, you don't really know the love of God. You haven't really experienced the love of God. If you did, you trust it. <laughs> so if you don't obey, you must not believe God's love. If you believed God's love, you would believe and know and experience that His commandments are in your best interest and for His glory. That's the source, that's the root of disobedience. We don't really know and believe the love God has for us. Otherwise, we'd do what He asks us to do. We'd submit, we'd obey, we'd trust. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not grievous. And so I think about this concept and, and like the parable of the pound, similar to the parable of the talents. The man who buried his pound in the napkin, the handkerchief, what did he say? What was his accusation against God? I was afraid because you're a severe man. We disobey because we don't believe, we don't trust that what God's asked us to do <laughs> is in our best interest. And for His glory. That's the connection. You don't really believe and trust the love God has for you, or you'd obey Him. You'd submit to Him. So 1 John 2, 5, John writes, But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. So is it God's love for us or our love for God? 
that he's talking about here. There's parallels for both throughout this book. God's love for us, our love for God, maybe it's both. Maybe God's love is reflected back, perfected, completed in our love for God and our love for other people. Maybe that completes God's love in action. It's not bottled up and kept to myself. And people who claim to know God but don't obey God don't have the love of God perfected in them because it should be evident in the way that we love God and we love other people. So how do you know and distinguish a born-again Christian between those who haven't been born again? What's the difference? 1 John 3, 5, John writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Whether they practice righteousness and love or whether they practice sin and hate. This is not an ambiguous test. It's clear. You want to know? You want to know if you're born again, if you're saved? You want to know the difference? Do you love God? Do you love others? Do you practice love and righteousness or hate and sin? The first few verses in chapter 3 are all about righteousness and he transitions into love, which is how righteousness is ultimately the commandments of God are summed up. Love God, love other people. Do you practice righteousness? Do you practice love? Children, are obvious. Children of God are obvious. They're evident. They practice righteousness. They practice love. And we see that theme throughout this book. So in 1 John 3, 3, John writes, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone and no one are themes, phrases he uses throughout the book approximately 13 times. And it's emphasizing their defining, distinguishing characteristics of Christians and non-Christians. Everyone, and it's positive and negative, everyone who's been born of God does these things. Everyone who's not born of God <laughs> doesn't do these things. Everyone born of God doesn't do this negative and positive throughout. Emphasizing these are defining marks of what it means to be a Christian. Again, doesn't mean that we don't sin at all. Doesn't mean that now we're perfect, but we don't go on sinning without confession. We see it, we hate it, we confess it, we fight it. And again, as we emphasize this morning, Christ came to pay for your sins and to help you stop sinning. John makes that point clear abundantly throughout this book. He came to give you a clear purpose for living your life. And notice the connection. Everyone who thus hopes purifies. The connection between our practice, our purification, what we do, and our hope. You have to have hope or you're not going to purify. You have to have hope that you're going to be forgiven that He forgives you. If you don't have that hope, what's the point? Why, why would we try, right? Why deny yourself? Take it, why would you try if, if you believed you were hopeless? We get discouraged, we get despondent, we quit. But we have hope, we have faith, we have trust that Christ will help us. He died to make it happen. He lives to make it happen. And I think about the story of a, a young, rambunctious boy who was not well-behaved, and he was in a class, and the teacher finally was exasperated and just said, you know, you think God wants you to act, made you to act like that? What, what, essentially, God must have messed up when he made you. Not a very nice thing to say to a kid, but you know what his reaction was? <laughs> he ain't done with me yet. And isn't that awesome? Isn't that good news for us? He ain't done with me yet. When we see Jesus, He'll make us like Him. That's when we achieve perfection and our glorification. That's when we put on perfection, His perfection. He ain't done with me yet. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself, prepares for that perfection right now. 
When you live in constant awareness of this truth, of His return, of this glorification, it shapes you into His image right now in the way that you live your life. That's our hope. When I see Jesus, I'm going to be like Jesus. That's my hope. And that hope moves us, motivates us to become like Jesus right now and prepare for that right now. Purifies us on the basis of that hope according to His standards as He is pure. Anticipation results in purification. Notice John writes in 2 John 8, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Notice the full reward of works. And that's not a popular doctrine. We've talked a lot about Gnosticism, Calvinism, Greek fatalism. Watch yourself. Personal responsibility. Notice the word work, which is almost heresy in Christendom today. Work. Notice the word lose. There's the possibility of a... We don't want to swing to the opposite extreme. We've been talking about that it means probability, but notice the possibility of salvation. You can lose. And notice we will receive a full reward. We receive a reward now, but the full reward is to come on Judgment Day where every man and woman, every person is judged according to what? Their works. Their practice. Their lifestyle. 1 John 3, 22 and 23, John writes, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because why? Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. God answers the prayers of those who submit to Him, who obey Him, who believe and love. Prayer is the result of faith and the cause of love. And so if we pray without faith, that doesn't work. And if we pray without the intent and the conviction, the desire to obey, that doesn't work either. The power of prayer is realized, is made effectual in our obedience. Give us this day our daily bread doesn't mean a loaf of wonder bread plops down at the table at supper. God expects us to go out and be the natural mediums by which God working in us and through us can answer these prayers and put bread on the table and the bread on other people's table. If there's no faith, no love, no obedience, our prayers are vain and they are powerless. Believing and loving have to work together to answer prayer. When we believe in Jesus, we will try to act like Jesus and love like Jesus, and we will have the power of Jesus behind us when we live like Jesus, when we do like Jesus. When you think about heroes of faith that we look up to, and think about Paul and Peter and John, and the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, we throw David in there. Think about the confidence and assurance and hope and expectation they had in spite of all the terrible things they did, in spite of their past. I mean, some truly awful things, and yet you read their writings, it's clear they know exactly where they're going. Where'd that confidence and assurance come from? Their apostleship? Their miracles? No. Their perfection? No. Came from their understanding and appreciation of grace. And the fact that they knew, I'm not that person anymore. I've changed. I've put off, I've crucified, I've buried, he's dead and gone. Even though I have this struggle, Romans 7, I'm fighting, I've put off the old man, I've put on the new man, that theme we see throughout the writings. I'm dead to sin. Paul was no longer the person who had killed Stephen and kicked against the pricks. But if you don't change... Those sins will keep resurfacing. They won't go away. 
You know, Paul talked a lot about his past. And I think there's a benefit in that. Not that we wallow in it. Not that we lose joy and confidence and hope in Christ and faith in Christ. That becomes counterproductive. But there's a benefit in that it can humble us. It can make us be more grateful. We can be like the person Jesus described, the one who was forgiven most, loves most. And that's good. It can cause us to be more gracious and understanding and generous towards other people. And so that remembrance of our past is very, very helpful. And Paul kept bringing up his past. Even though he knew it was forgiven, he talked about his past a lot. I used to be that person. And the grace of God, made, by the grace of God, I am what I am, magnifies the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every imperfection in our past, even our present, not that we sin to magnify the grace, continue in sin that grace may abound. That's not our intent. <laughs> that shouldn't be our goal. But every imperfection in our life is an opportunity to relive and retell the gospel of Christ and the grace of God in our life and give our testimony. See what Christ has done in my life. See what Christ can do in your life. And so we don't need to put on a facade on social media. We don't need to project perfection. And I want to close by spending just a few moments talking about perfectionism because it's something I have struggled with for a long time. And I can't even say that I'm a recovering perfectionist because I haven't recovered yet. I mean, it's a battle. In fact, I've, I've done some, in a, ironically, in an attempt to overcome and deal with my perfectionism, I've studied how I can be more perfect in overcoming my perfectionism. And it's exhausting. And you can study what people say about perfectionism, uh, and they'll say basically there's adaptive and, and maladaptive perfectionism. And an adaptive perfectionist, that's the good kind. That's what, you know, you have drive. All of us should have it since some things very, uh, that we have perfectionistic tendencies that we care about. We should care about things. We should strive for excellence as Christians. But when we, we recognize we're imperfect, when we mess up, when things aren't perfect, we can adapt. We can learn from it. It doesn't destroy us. We're motivated by our desire to, to do the best, but when we not necessarily a fear of failure that consumes us and paralyzes us. And so maladaptive are those where it becomes more counterproductive and, and problematic, where you don't adapt. You, it's, it's paralyzing. You don't have a place for grace in your life or the a life of other people. And that's when it becomes... You know, they say your greatest strengths can become your greatest weaknesses. And perfectionism certainly can be that way. Perfectionists can be very high-functioning and very high-achieving, but often at a great expense. Uh, when things have to always be perfect, when things have to always go perfect, as, as I struggle with in my life, nothing's ever good enough. And if nothing's ever good enough, you're always going to be disappointed. And it, it's, it's never enough. Uh, and so... We think about what John talks about in this book and how he's very hard on the perfectionist and don't be claiming perfection and don't expect perfection. We want to have the good type of drive that says, I want to, in light of what Christ has done for me, I want to honor that by doing my best. And we shouldn't be content with or understand this desire of, of being sloppy and wasting time and wasting money and wasting opportunity. That shouldn't resonate with us. We shouldn't be content with that. We should have a... a a desire to, to do our best and to strive for Christian excellence and to have that positive perfectionism. But we should allow for grace in our life and the grace of others because we can begin to project our perfectionism on ourselves but on other people, on our children, and we become hard to live with. 
you could ask Kelsey sometimes. I'm probably hard to live with at times because of my perfection, and I'm not careful. I can project that on my children and be very hard. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have high standards and that we should lower. We have the highest of standards. But we also should allow for grace in our life and in the lives of other people, and we should appreciate and be grateful for the fact that we have an advocate that bridges the vast chasm between my performance and perfection that I can't bridge, can't even come close to bridging. So we say, you know, I don't, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. It's never, it's never enough. Things aren't good enough. Things aren't perfect enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect. And you know what the answer is? You're right. You're not good enough. You're not perfect enough, and you never will be. How perfect enough do we have to be? How good enough do you have to be? The standard is not other people. It's not subjective. The standard is the objective goodness and righteousness and perfection of God. And if every one of our thoughts and words and choices was exposed, we'd all be utterly humiliated, every single one of us. The standard is Christ, and we have fallen so short of that standard. Jesus told the rich young ruler, there's none good but God. He wasn't denying his deity. He was pointing out, do you understand what you're saying about me? There's none good but God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen so short of that standard. How perfect do you have to be to be perfect? I mean, isn't that, isn't that a dumb question? How perfect do you have to be to be perfect? To be perfect. There's only one that is perfect. And I want to tell you, Jesus did not come to die on the cross because we were worthy and because we were perfect. God committed His love towards us when we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. My good enough's not good enough, but His good enough is. He's good enough. He's more than enough. It's His righteousness. Not our goodness towards God, but it's His goodness towards us. And you see, that the truth is, good, perfect people don't need to be saved. Sinners, imperfect people need to be saved. So we said this morning, if we could be good enough, we could be perfect enough, righteous enough, we wouldn't need grace. <laughs> we wouldn't need cleansing. We wouldn't need Christ to clean us up. So I think John emphasizes it's not so much, obviously, perfection because you're not perfect. And what can happen is we strive to be our best, which we should, but if we're not careful, we begin to strive to be the best. And that becomes something entirely different. In trying to be the best, we become our worst. It's not about perfection, it's about your direction. What's your trajectory? What's your practice? What's your walk? What's your, what's your trajectory? The new birth has changed our direction. We set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. So even though we sin, it's not the direction our life is taking. What's your direction this afternoon? As we offer an invitation, maybe you're here and you need to change direction. That's repentance, turning around. The biggest change of direction a person could ever make is to be born again in the kingdom of God. We've talked a lot about that. Believe, repent, confess, be washed in the blood to be resurrected in your life. Maybe as a Christian, you need to change direction. You need to change your walk. You need to change your habits. You need to change your lifestyle. You need to, to flee to your advocate. As we talked about this morning, uh, when you find yourself slipping into pretense and hypocrisy, we do need to do our best and understand that there is grace. There is help in time of need. There is an advocate, there is propitiation, a place of atonement that bridges the gap between my performance and perfection. And he'll bridge that gap for you if you trust him.
and if you love him. And so if you need to respond to that, if you need to confess sin, whether that's privately or publicly, we, we talked again this morning, we, we think, you know, I've got to confess sin, what a terrible person I am because I'm having to do it. You know, one of, one of the proofs that maybe we're at least getting on the right track, getting back to where we need to be and walking in the light, one of the proofs that you are walking in the light, that you, John emphasized one of the keys to being a Christian, one of the defining characteristics of being a Christian is constantly confessing sin <laughs> because you are imperfect. Having the humility and the awareness to say, I am imperfect. Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Instead of a self-righteous spirit, that's the kind of spirit that God is near. The broken spirit. The ones who mourn over sin. Blessed are those, the Beatitudes who mourn over sin. And that's actually proof that you're trying to walk with Christ in the light. And so if you have a spiritual need this afternoon, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.